all-new, crisp, cool, refreshing Cano Tambos. A complete affordable library of tambourine loops from 50 to 154 beats per minute. Pop the top and add instant life and dynamics to any mix. Used by the top producers, engineers, and recording artists of today. Simply drag and drop. With multiple bit depths and sample rates to choose from, you'll never have to record another tambourine again. Visit canotambos.com. That's C-A-N-O-T-A-M-B-O-S.com and enter promo code Turned Up. One word, Turned Up, for 20% off. Cano Tambos. And I'll just start this. Are you there? Hey, hey. I'm over here. I'm down here on the blue track. Lima, Lanco, Soy, and Pinto, Navy, Northern, and Garbanzo. No, nothing. I like lima beans. Nope. Nope. Okay. Broadcasting from Nashville, Tennessee, offering a glimpse inside the music industry, shedding light on things they don't want you to know, and exposing some of the industry's biggest secrets. You're listening to the Turned Up Podcast, presented by Real Sound Productions. Here are your hosts, Jake Jones. Oh, those were some yummy chips. And Robert Venable. It sounded like there were some yummy chips, and it appeared to me that you were enjoying those chips. Listen. I offered you some chips, okay? That's a true story. You did. But I could tell by the look in your eye that you really didn't want to let me have any of those chips. It's the thought that you did not even. Mm. I don't even think you thought about letting it like come to me at all. I think you were just thinking sour cream and onion. I have loved sour cream and onion chips as long as I can remember. As long as I knew that there was such a thing as chips. Same here. I wonder if they make plain just potato dip to put your sour cream and onion chips in, so you're not overwhelming yourself with sour cream and onion flavor. Is there really such a thing, though, as overwhelming yourself with sour cream and onion flavor? No, I guess I'm just, I'm not happy with just whelming myself with it. But if you want to overwhelm yourself, that's fine, too. It's up to you. Discretion is, is all yours. Those words with modifiers. There was one I was thinking of earlier today while I was cleaning up my studio in preparation for this podcast. And I can't remember what it was, but it's one of those words that I've never heard it without that extra, like, overwhelming. The prefix or something, yeah. I've heard overwhelming and underwhelming, but I've never, what, what about just whelming? Um, you can be whelmed. I'm whelmed right now. Feels very mediocre. Or just ochre. Right? <laughs> Isn't that a color? It's like a, it's like a brownish orange. Isn't that a vegetable? That's okra. Okra's good. You can be mediocre, which is the middle part of the okra. I like fried okra, but if you've ever had like boiled okra, it's slimy. I'm not a big okra fan any way that it has been um, prepared. I like it fried in like cornmeal. Do you like collard greens? I love collard greens. I don't mind collard greens. I like lima beans. Nope. Nope. Okay. Um, or black eyed peas. I don't like black eyed. I don't like any. Well, I like green peas. Nope. I don't like beans in general. Unless they're green. And then I'm in. I like beans. For the most part, most beans. Lima, lento, soy, and pinto, navy, northern, and garbanzo. No, nothing? That's a space ghost. It keeps going. <laughs> space ghost, coast to coast. Um, Brack or one of those guys did that. That sounds like a Brack thing. So space ghost, uh, for anyone listening who doesn't know what that is, is old. And it's really old. That's back to my high school days. Um, when I went back to get my GED after dropping out in the 1400s. I was about to say, come on. I know. I saw that look in your, that <laughs> in look in your, your face. face. I saw that look in your face. And if I know anything, I know that that's not a statement that you say. <laughs> <laughs> well, good morning. Afternoon and evening. At any time that you're listening to this lovely podcast, this is the Turned Up Podcast and you have come 
at just the right time because you happen to start listening right as we started podcasting. That's a true statement. You hit play and it's like, bam, we decided to do a podcast at the same time. What are the odds? You might find yourself pretty whelmed right now. Underwhelmed, overwhelmed, or just regular whelmed, but we are here to fill that gap. It is Monday if you're listening to this on the day it came out, or possibly Tuesday, or Wednesday, or Thursday, or Friday, or Saturday, or Sunday, or maybe it's the next Monday, or the next Tuesday, or the next... <laughs> I'm going to stop you right there, Kanye. I'm going to let you finish. Um, if you're listening right now, it's Thursday, and you should probably not be in the studio because we don't know you're here. That would be weird. What if somebody was here? Last week, we had uh, Jennifer Walter, one of our patrons, sitting in the studio with us. Which is awesome. It's nice having people sitting in with us while we're doing this. Having it's, an audience. I mean, even if the audience is just one. I'm, I'm, I'm in. It's fun. I like it. It's fun. It's it was fun looking over and seeing her just like tear up laughing. I think it was because she was laughing. She was definitely tearing up, though, <laughs> during our podcast. <laughs> Robert. If I was listening to the Turned Up podcast and I wanted to sit in and listen to an episode be recorded live, how would I do that? You could go to turneduppodcast.com and that'll redirect you to our um, our hosting site on Podbean. And up in the upper right-hand corner, it says become a patron. And uh, we have several different like ideas and options and, and choices for you. And one of those includes being able to come in anytime you're in Nashville or in or around Nashville to come hang out with us in the studio live um, while we tape it. And not only did she actually get to sit in, but she, while she was there, she recorded a show intro yeah. for us. And if, if you, you listened, go back and listen, yeah. yeah. Last week it was there. Which was week uh, uh, episode number five. Five of season two. Yeah. Yep. That was the one. Um, so today, as we record this, yesterday was Halloween. If you're listening to this last Wednesday, October 31st, 2018, because we know that people are going to be listening to this episode for years to come. Um, it was Halloween, and I have a ton of candy. Um, my kids did all the work for me, but let's be honest. <laughs> That's uh, how we have children, Jake. It's the dad tax. It is the dad tax. And due to inflation, as Justin Forshaw, the oh. third member of our band as we ascend, let us all know, uh, due to inflation, <laughs> the dad tax has been raised this year. It's pretty high this year. And speaking um, from you know, actual experience um, from when I was a child, when before candy was a thing, we just handed out um, empty corn cobs and stones and small pebbles um, for Halloween. Uh, <laughs> the, the tax has significantly increased. Increased. I'm learning how to talk, by the way. Um, it has significantly increased. And, uh, this You're doing year, really well. As a dad, uh, thank you, um, I taxed pretty severely. I came down hard on the people, and uh, the people were my twins. And uh, I've, I mean, I'm kit-catted out right now. Well, let's be honest. You know, they want things like nice roads, good schools. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They want it's, all of that. You got to stay alive. They want dinner. They want breakfast. Um, sometimes they want lunch. Uh, they do want to ride in a car. They want to sleep with a roof over their head. Things like that, you know, some people would say are luxury items, but... They don't come cheap. You got a tax to get that. That's what we well, say in our household. Uh, you know, I love candy, but I love chips more. And that is the honest truth. I would rather have... I do know that about you. Ruffles and French onion dip you, than a Snickers bar any day. Preach. I feel like we're going to church right now. And I love Snickers. But I do like candy. You don't have a sweet tooth like I do. Um, I could eat candy all day, every meal, all six meals a day, and just nothing but candy. But you... Um, I think you're more of a savory person. You do like the desserts and stuff, but you don't like the candies or the, the cakes as much as I do. 
And as you can tell, I like a lot of savory things. <laughs> I do enjoy the savory things as well. So if, if you look at me, you'll see all of that. And savory and sweet. There's something else I see when I look at you, Robert. Is it my halo? Mm, I don't have one of those. It's what, a little dim. What do you... <laughs> I see someone who this. has been nominated for a Grammy. I see someone oh. who has won at multiple Dove Awards, from what I understand. I think there are a few of them in there. I see someone who has earned himself uh, one gold record that I know of, but I feel like multiples that just have not made their way. Because how many years did it take to get the one that you... It's a couple, two years. Two years, yeah. Takes a while to get them. Um, all for your work as a producer and engineer, Mr. Robert Venable. Hello. Of robertvenable.com. Hey, um, it's me in real life. <laughs> the guy is absolutely <laughs> insane. If you're listening... Oh, man. Um, You've, you've turned into the right podcast for someone who really knows what they're talking about. Robert has been doing this for literally hundreds of years. Uh, he helped invent recording. Uh, no, but he's very well accomplished. Uh, he even has his own Wikipedia page. Just Google Robert Venable. Um, but Robert, you've worked with some of the, the biggest artists literally in the entire world. Uh, one of my favorites, Kelly Clarkson, uh, who's just all over the headlines these days. 21 Pilots, who's out on tour right now. Megadeth, of course, a legend. Also as well out as, on tour right now, which is funny. Really? Yeah, they just don't stop. The the Walkers and Dentures tour is that. <laughs> it's anyway. Gums and guitars. Um, hey! <laughs> you recorded Dave Mustaine's uh, demo back when he was a kid. I remember um, when he was growing up. Yeah. <laughs> not not true. Um, nope. But I, like, I, not not true. Um, the uh, you've worked with some of the, the heaviest hitters in in rap as well, rap and hip hop. And uh, I'm honored to call you m- one of my greatest friends in the entire world, Thanks, and someone that I get to work with all the time. Oh man, that's um, so nice of you. Uh, but something that I truly admire about you more than any of those other accomplishments, and I mean leaps and bounds more, uh, is something that I recently found out about you. It's on your Wikipedia page. Make oh, sure awesome. you Google, Google Robert Venable. Um, <laughs> and I just found this out, that you once held a world record for the smallest blanket ever to be used on a cricket while jumping off of a step at the bottom of a courthouse in Akron, Ohio. That was so much information. Um, let's, let's rewind this. Akron, Ohio, the courthouse. That's on High Street. Look it up. That's true. Akron, Ohio. Known as uh, the Silicon Valley of the 19th century, Akron, Ohio, the world headquarters of rubber. How do I feel like you have Googled Akron, <laughs> Ohio after seeing my notes? Do you know that Akron, Ohio is known for the BF Goodrich tires and the world championship of like derby racing? He says as he reads off of his MacBook. So there's a little misconception about the world record, and I kind of let it slide. I didn't want to correct them because I didn't want them to feel bad about themselves. Um, for, We're talking about the Guinness Book, right? Right, yeah. Okay. I mean, are there others? Well, I hold my own world record ceremony every year. We should publish a rival the Guinness Book of World Records. <laughs> Ideas. The Budweiser Book of World Records. Why does Guinness get to do it? I'm fairly certain we're like 20 minutes in right now. And oh, great! We should probably start talking. <laughs> oh, um, <no>. so, <laughs> so, so the world record actually. I mean, it, it was a little misconstrued. I didn't make the smallest blanket for a cricket. I made a smallest blanket for a lady named Sarah Cricket, who actually married Francis Decker um, in January 5th of 1657 um, at St. Antolin's, uh, Budge Row in London, and they honeymooned in, in Akron, Ohio. They came to the great old United States. <laughs> I can't keep straight face. I can't either. Looking at you laugh. This is beautiful. So, that you have- so they, she came over here um, with her 
with her beloved betrothed, Frances Decker, and uh, they honeymooned on the steps of the courthouse there on High Street in Akron, Ohio. I knitted a blanket for them for their wedding gift. As you were jumping off the steps. And she jumped off the steps. Uh, It was raining. It was weird. Um, and they gave me a world record for that. Uh, I guess there was a slow day at the Guinness headquarters. <laughs> I can see through the, the through the centuries how that has. Uh, it, you know, one person the told the next person. It's a telephone it. game. You know how it goes. They chiseled it in stone first, and then wrote it down. And, and then ugh, it's time I came clean. Um, so <laughs> I'm glad we got that straightened out. I'm glad we did too. <laughs> Yeah, I totally cheated and looked at your at your notes on what you were going to say that I did this time. And Which is funny because the whole time we've been talking, I've been seeing you like every once in a while, you're like doing something on your laptop. And I thought, what is he doing? Huh? Why is he typing over there by himself? <laughs> I did. I totally spent 10 minutes researching Akron, Ohio, where the courthouse was, what it's known for, and people with the last name Cricket. Oh, my stomach hurts. Oh, that is awesome. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. Pinning that Guinness World Record to my name was the one and only Jake Jones. We mentioned a minute ago the band As We Ascend and uh, our third member, Justin Forshaw. But he is the first member um, of the band As We Ascend, the singer and the guitarist and uh, producer and engineer and mixer of our album uh, Farewell to Midnight, which came out, man, two years ago now? Already, yeah. Also, songwriter um, with Shoalsville Music based out of right here, Nashville, Tennessee. Um, And uh, you produce, you engineer, you mix, you write songs, you do all sorts of things that are ridiculously amazing. Um, You've got awards on the wall and... And uh, plaques and framed, framed, what's the thing called? Like, I guess it's like a framed, uh, I don't know, it's for the Billboard number one charting song that you co-wrote, mixed, produced, engineered, all that fun stuff. Thank you, Hobby Lobby. Thank you, Hobby Lobby. And uh, one of my favorite things about you, Jake Jones, that you already know, but I don't think the masses know about you yet, is you on the side of being a producer and engineer, love cleaning aquariums, but... I didn't want to spill the beans on this, but tell everybody what you collect while doing that. So I, uh, I, I, I started collecting back when I acquired my turtle, Albert, yeah. uh, Gabe for short. Nice guy. Right. Um, Gabe is a common nickname for Albert. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't like to let people know that I do this. Um, it's very humbling of you, by the way, to speak on this. But tell about your collection, please. I like to collect fingernails that wind up in the bottom of aquariums, uh, aquariums, terrariums, fish tanks, whatever you want to call them, whatever they are. doesn't matter if they're reptiles or fish. You'd be amazed at the sheer amount of fingernails that wind up in the bottom of these things. Um, so I have, uh, I actually have fingernails from, um, former first lady Barbara Bush, as well as former first lady, uh, Hillary Clinton, <laughs> Um, I've also collected fingernails from the Queen of England. Oh, that's a good one. Um, uh, Recently, our trip to Europe, I collected some fingernails from uh, Greg. Uh, Yeah, the guy that was there. Yep. Uh, I also, um, there's a lady named Sharon that I have. (laughs) From the subway, I remember her. Three of her fingernails. She didn't even know you got those while she was sleeping. I was impressed. The thing is, and the honest truth is, uh, it's, it's, they're all around. If you look, if you go to your friend's house, look at the carpet next to the couch, you're going to see some, maybe they're fingernails, maybe they're toenails, who knows, who cares? Uh, there's a lot of practical uses for them, but more than anything else, you could sell them. And that's really what I like to do. Wow. Uh, and they're worth a lot of money. Wow. Um, yep. Uh, and so check out my eBay, uh, seller page, uh, F T R L C dash 
4963-128nails.301. And that's where you can go in. You can buy fingernails from Dale. Uh, I also have some from Sally. And one Uh, more time, that that seller name was? I'm sorry. I was like, we'll skip it. I can tell you're struggling. My throat's dry. Just rewind 15 seconds, you'll find it. Oh my word. (laughs) We're so stupid. Maybe the longest intro of any episode ever, but I am excited about this one. This concludes our episode. Thanks for turning in. (laughs) Until next time, Nashville signing out. Peace. No, today we're talking about something that affects your life and my life every single day. Uh, things that we've had to deal with for our entire career. Hemorrhoids. And this is a serious thing in the music industry. Oh, that's next up. That's okay. That's next episode. I got the wrong next spreadsheet up here. Here it's we go. Different podcast. Oh yeah. The psychology of music. So this is a real thing. Um, as producers and engineers and artists, uh, Jake, you and I, we deal a lot with this. Um, it's, it's the art of, of kind of playing brain games and mind tricks on, on the people we work with, including ourselves in order to get the best possible results um, in the studio. So Robert and I, we both produce and we also happen to engineer as well. And when we're recording bands, when we're recording artists, no matter what genre it's in, people get into the studio and the song's written, right? The, the hard work is done. Uh, maybe it's for a record label or a manager. Maybe they've just hired us to, to do the work themselves. Yeah. Um, but most of the groundwork has already been laid and it's time to get down to business. Um, so all the technical work uh, is going to sit on the shoulders of the engineer. And depending on the session, could be one of us. We could be engineering our own project that we're producing or we could mm-hmm. have a separate engineer. Um, but as a producer, we have to step up to the plate and 90% of what we're doing is a mind game. I would agree with that. And the other 10% is magic. I mean, there's there, <laughs> mind games and magic. It's the new game by Hasbro. Um, <laughs> it, it's true. There's a lot that goes into recording um, a song besides the technical stuff that, you know, the choosing the right microphones and where the microphones go on the instrument or voice, um, the preamps and compression or EQ settings you use, what kind of digital audio workstation or console you're using to record it. If you're going to tape, if you're going to ones and zeros on a hard drive, how you mix things, the plugins and the programs you use, the outboard gear, the settings, the electricity, voltage, everything that goes into this. There's so much that's technical. All that aside, there's 10 times that um, more worth of psychology and the way we need to relate with the artist, relate to ourselves and just make the session um, flow in the right way to get what we need. Well, funny enough, uh, the average listener of music, you listening to this podcast, most likely, unless you work in the music industry, you're an artist or a, or a producer, an engineer, um, if you just enjoy music, you don't care about any of those things. But you don't, you don't care what kind of preamp or yeah. drum set or what model guitar. Most of you don't. For the most part. But the thing you care about more than anything else is, does this make me feel anything? Do I believe what this person's saying? And you want to know that that in itself is a product of psychology. A hundred percent. It's something that we have taken in consideration as producers that we want to make you as a listener feel a certain way, hear a certain thing, focus on a certain part or instrument or melody. And we've all, we've taken the time to 
to draw this out very intricately in a very preconceived plan in a matter of fact way just to make you do certain things like a puppeteer does with a marionette. That's what I was about to say. None of that is an accident. When you hear a song and it reaches a certain point that you get goosebumps. Yep. That's not a mistake. It's planned. Um, to a, to a point magic does happen. That 10% yeah, of, yeah. I, you know, wow, that's, Didn't expect that to happen. Um, Really quick, before we go any further, I do want to uh, differentiate between a producer and an engineer. Now, if you're the average listener to music, you might have, back in the day, uh, you might (laughs) have looked through your CD booklet and seen, uh, you know, produced by blah, 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 mixed by blah, 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 engineered. And a lot of times... Sometimes the engineer is credited. Sometimes just the studio is credited. That's all the stuff you skipped over when you're looking for the lyrics or fun <laughs> pictures of the band right. in the studio. So uh, uh, the the big difference between a producer and engineer is the the everything. I mean, the fundamental job. Um, and in today's economy, as well as uh, you know, just uh, the way it is. What did I say? Yeah, like the 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 weather, the the atmosphere, the atmosphere of today's. Uh, music industry a lot of times the producer and the engineer are the same people an engineer is just someone who is doing technical things uh, an audio engineer they could be the person uh, responsible for setting up microphones uh pressing record they could be the person responsible for mixing it's, it's um, the technical stuff and a lot of it is not creative it's more of trying to capture the sound the way it sounds in the room or in real life in the producer's vision or artist's vision trying to make that sound sound accurate and clean without being distorted or muffled or, you know, thin or crispy, just trying to capture it accurately or precisely. Exactly. And a producer, I like to tell people who have no idea what the term producer actually means is think about a movie or a TV show and what the director does. The director has his director seat, a lot of times, I mean, the director's not there behind the camera pressing record every time. He might be looking at a screen to see what the camera's picking up. See if it captures what his vision is showing him. But he has a vision for what that television show or movie should look like, yeah. feel like. Um, you know, he'll tell the actors what to do or what to say. At the last minute, he might change a line. Um, so that is, in the music industry, that's more or less a producer's job. Yeah. They they direct the outcome of the song or album or EP uh, that the artist is there to record. They can usually see, um, I say they, we can usually see the end result um, from a very early stage. Sometimes it's just a piano or a guitar and a vocal, and I can already hear what it's going to sound like with a wall of guitars and drums and synths and stacks of vocals. Um, and you can take that same that same demo idea of just the guitar and vocal and send it to you, Jake, and you might have a totally different end vision. Um, but that's why we're different producers, but you and I kind of have the same kind of vision in the end anyway. Like we can kind of be on that wavelength. But um, I like to, to explain what a producer is as a puppeteer. We get to tell the band what to do. We can chop up the songs. We can, uh, you know, we, we just know the end result and know how to get there. And we rely on the engineer and their technical abilities to make it happen on a physical level. Now, the uh, in a lot of cases or instances, you and I wind up wearing both hats at the same time, and there are some mm. uh, there are some advantages and disadvantages to that. Um, it does save money. It saves a lot of money. It also, I, I know for myself personally, 
I, it, it, it can sometimes be easier for me to say, oh, wait, 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 I have an idea. Yeah. Let me record that really quick rather than, oh, wait, wait, I have an idea. Hey, Mr. Engineer, uh, let's go back to uh, uh, that one part, <laughs> that one part. Uh, what's the the right over there? No, keep going. It's totally frustrating for me sometimes working with third-party engineers um, in different recording studios that aren't my own. Um, sometimes I rely on them because I don't know how the room is wired up. I don't know how their patch bay is or their console, the thing with all the buttons and faders and knobs. I don't know how it's wired up because it can be a number of different ways. Um, but so I need them to like show me where those those ways are. However, sometimes because I've been doing this for 15, 20 years, I know what I want done and how to do it the quickest uh, in a way I want to, like you were saying. And sometimes it's frustrating to wait on them to have to explain it or say, no, 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 not there. No, I just wanted to just let me do it real quick. One of the downsides of being a producer and also engineering a project that you're producing uh, as it pertains specifically to recording the the audio is that you might be focused more on on the the quality of the sound and less on the quality of the performance. performance yeah, yeah. Um and so that's that's exactly a, right. an extra challenge that comes along with trying to do both at the same time is you have to be very careful to make sure, you know, you, that you do have that it sounds good. You're using the right preamps or console or whatever, you know, kind of technical jargon that goes along with that uh and that you're then paying attention to did you say that right not right. just did you pronounce it properly but did i feel it like i totally missed that you were just saying fart 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 the whole time um right. but i know it didn't clip right and that the eq sounded great on it crystal clear sometimes um i know in the mix and stuff that i've produced and engineered myself i'm like wow they sang the whole wrong verse there or like <laughs> How did I not catch that? Because I was listening to something else. I was listening, but paying attention to something else. Yep. Um, we should just dive in. Let's talk about the psychology of a producer. So uh, the psychology of a producer is really that. I mean, I feel like we, we did a pretty good job of, of covering kind of the, with broad strokes, the idea, the, you know, your, your job is less about whether or not the snare sounds good. Your job more is, is the drummer hitting the snare at the right time? Um, and and that's that's important. There's a feel there, and there's a there's a vision that you have to accomplish. Um, and and the the thing with being a producer that I don't think you or I struggle with is there's the god complex of being the guy in charge. Ultimately, in a recording studio, whoever's paying the bill is the the most in charge. Is the boss because you need to make them happy because they're paying for it. Whether it be the record label the executive producer, which sometimes you'll never meet sometimes yep. never shows up in the studio, but they're listed as executive producer. They're the money bags. Yep. Um, but not letting that get to your head as a producer, not walking into the room. I've got 15,000 gold records and a box of Kellogg's cornflakes. And I think you should bow down to me. Um, it's, it's, you gotta let that go. Which as an artist, I've worked with producers. Oh, I know. Just like that. I know people like that. <laughs> it's tough hanging out with them and having a conversation with them without hearing the conversation switch to me, 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 me. Um, I'll never forget. I've sold 32 million records out of this studio. I heard it over and over and over again. It's sad, man. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. However, let other people toot your horn and don't toot your own horn. Um, be humble about it. Yeah. Toot. <laughs> um, so with that hierarchy in the studio of the producer being essentially the one telling the engineer what to do, uh, there's this, there's a lot of psychology that goes in behind that. Um, 
A, as the producer, keeping yourself in check, and B, as the engineer, making the producer think that he is in charge when sometimes you need to do things on a technical level that kind of contradict what he's telling you to do for some reason or another. You don't want to cross him. You don't want to disagree with him, but you have to do certain things or else he'll regret it later. Um, So you have to make him think that it's the right idea. So we should probably jump into something like that. Yeah. So, and this is going to come into play here in a a minute, but um, there is kind of a, would you say like pseudo political hierarchy? There is. I, I think with, with any organization, with any, whether it's a company or a government or anything, there has to be someone in charge. There has to be people um, who, who will kind of like listen to what that person says. So there has to be someone calling the shots yeah. and, uh, in a typical recording session, that's the producer and underneath him is the engineer. And the reason for that is because the producer is getting paid for his ideas, for his brain, his that, knowledge. That's why he's hired. The engineer is getting paid for his expertise with being able to record quickly, proficiently, accurately, and make things sound good. Getting those good sounds. For that reason, uh, normally an engineer doesn't give his opinion. And that can be crucial because if there's a lot of opinions flying around in a recording session, um, because everybody's got a different way that they think it should sound, um, it can get hairy. Opinions are like buttholes. Everybody has one. Some stink more than others. And also hairy. And things can get hairy. (laughs) (laughs) and there goes our listenership so so uh, so today we're we're talking specifically about the role of a producer um and and more specifically about kind of the games we play mentally with the artists or with ourselves or with the engineers or vice versa um and and there are some things we're going to share that might get us I don't know, not hired for the next gig. You want to hear what we have to say, but it's, it's, it's very true, psychological. Though. It's very, yeah. it's uh, you know, you've heard the, the term you're in your head and as a producer, it's our job to get in your head. Yeah. We have to do it at all costs by any means necessary. It's absolutely uh, crucial that we do because that's how we're going to get the best performance because an, an amazing performance can be the difference between a successful song and an unsuccessful song. Right. It could be the difference quite literally in millions of dollars <laughs> and five plays on Spotify. Just something as minor as a convincing performance. Absolutely. And you and I have listened to mixes um, by colleagues in the industry and said, what were they thinking? Why didn't that producer get a better take from that vocalist? Even, even faking it would sound better than whatever they just did. They sound like they were reading out of a book. Uh, completely adversely, we've both heard records that sounded like garbage, poorly engineered, poorly mixed, terrible. But the production was so amazing that those records still sold millions of copies and those artists are still around today. I listen to some of my favorite albums and just hear how poorly they were recorded or how poorly they were mixed. And just I just love them because of the performances. There were, there were some heart and soul in there. And I don't mean the uh, piano rendition of that song. <laughs> Um, but one of the big secrets that you and I use and other producers, you could ask any of them, um, it, that we use to get the best performance is to make it the artist's idea, like make it their, their thought or their thing. Um, and this is a trick I use with my kids too. <laughs> like, um, sometimes when a singer, let's use a singer as an example, is in there trying their best to do something. And sometimes you want to suggest another idea to them, but they're kind of stuck in their way. Like they know how they think it should sound. 
you got to kind of word things in a way to kind of make them come up with the idea themselves. Like, hey, well, what if we try it this way? And in your back of your mind, you're like, finally, I've been trying <laughs> to get them to say that for 10 minutes. Um, because some personalities, if you, they don't take criticism well, and there are a lot of egos in the music industry and some of the bigger egos are on the lesser well-known people. And some of the bigger names that you and I have worked with are the most humble down to earth, open to suggestion type people ever. Well, I think that that says a lot about the kind of the key to their success is Dude. being willing to take criticism and also take ideas and Humility, say, man. let's try it. Like when we worked with Brad Arnold, we're going to drop a name. We'll pick that up later. Um, of Three Doors Down, when he was in the studio tracking um, a song that we were working on, uh, he was op- completely open to whatever we wanted. I'm like, dude, you've been doing this since we were in junior high and uh, whatever you want to do. And he's like, nah, man, just you coach me. I'm like, this is crazy. This is weird. <laughs> um, but it was true. And any suggestion we threw out there, he wasn't like, eh, how about this? He was like, oh, that's a great one. Yes, yeah, do that. Let's try it. And I will say something that I noticed about that session in particular was how quickly you and I slipped into producer mode. Suddenly we were talking to him like we would any other artist. We did. Because he allowed himself to, to be in the position He's of, receptive of it. a normal artist and yeah. not like I'm Brad Arnold from three doors down and I know what I'm doing and you don't. <laughs> so that, and that's part of the thing. That's another aspect of, of psychology is they want to be instructed sometimes. So maybe sometimes we have to make it their idea and other times they're like, Hey, we hired you as a producer. We need that instruction. There are some people who have that personality, like just tell me what to do. So I have a direction and we slip into that producer mode. Like, Hey, do this. It's going to sound amazing. Let's try it out. And, uh, hi, this is Seth Mosley. And I got a huge announcement for all of you songwriters out there. These song chasers, commercial songwriting courses now available and you can get it for a special deal at turnedupodcast.com slash Seth, just like my name, S E T H. This is a comprehensive course in commercial songwriting for anyone who wants to be a part of writing a hit song. Again, go over to turneduppodcast.com slash Seth. Everything you need to know about commercial songwriting, turneduppodcast.com slash Seth. That's when we get their best take is when when they take that direction or they have a specific goal in mind. So I I started doing this... um, I should do the math. I tell everyone 13 years ago. Right at 13 years ago. um, Maybe... 12 years and 10 months ago. Okay, that's very um, specific. It is very specific because I, it's something, it doesn't matter. Um, Go on. So when I first started, I was engineering everything and calling myself a producer because I didn't know the difference. And I also didn't realize that just simply recording something wasn't enough. Right. Um, you have to have a vision for the final outcome and really what you're doing while you're in the studio is just manipulating the circumstances to create the 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 end um at, at, you know the the famous saying the means justify the end right um and so there are a lot of means to get where you need to go and not every artist is the same not every vocalist guitarist drummer responds to the same <laughs> thing i know something else that that you and i uh use all the time um, is to kind of break an artist down to, yep. uh, that could be stern, that could be mean, that could be loving, that could be understanding. There's a lot that kind of goes into that. Yeah. And there's quite a bit, like you said, that goes into that. There's quite a bit of setup that goes into that. Um, and where you can kind of tell in the first 10 minutes that you meet somebody like, oh, this is going to be one of those sessions where, um, this singer is going to end up crying 
or this singer is going to end up really mad at me. Um, but it's, it's, and I'm going to be completely honest. This is one of these things that I probably shouldn't say in the podcast and we can edit it out if we need to, but, um, where I've pre-planned and specifically targeted a certain member in a band, um, to just kind of be mean to, and it's not my personality. I have no mean bone in my body. I don't think I've ever seen you be mean to anyone, Uh, but I get that. I get in this mode where I can tell like just the certain personalities you come across in the studio where you're like, this guy's going to push back against everything I say. So I'm going to start just breaking them down. And some of it's going to be like, um, Hey man, maybe we can just hire a session player to do this. Like little demeaning cuts, um, which are all specifically lined up. And sometimes you have to have a little safe conversation with someone else in the band. Like, Hey dude, I'm going to play this card. It's not me, but it's going to break him down. It's going to get him to start listening to me or start trying other things outside of his box um, let his guard down a little bit. He doesn't know everything and YouTube videos aren't the end all <laughs> to being the best guitarist in recording studio. So yeah, there are times where you have to have that little side conversation like, Hey, just let you know it's all fine. I remember one time we were live streaming in the studio um, that I had a few years ago and uh, one of the player's wives were on the live stream and she was chatting like, why are you being so mean to my husband? Like, it's like for real stop. And I had to get her number from one of the other band members, like just text her and tell her that this is all part of a plan and she'll see it. She goes, I totally get it. I totally get it. It's like, I have to make it his idea to take out the trash or he won't do it. Even though, he, you know, that kind of thing. I'm like, that's the personality you have to have. Sometimes you have to play that card. You have to play the, Hey man, maybe we can just, is there something else we can do? Maybe we can have to get a different guitar. I don't know. Are your fingers cramping up? You just start saying little things like, why are you doing it this way in order to get the best performance out of them? Cause instead of them sitting back, like I'm the best guitar player in the world, I can do this in my sleep. Like, you know, you need to pay attention. No, you need to tune your guitar, like that kind of stuff. And to get it out of them, you have to kind of be a douche. You know, one of the lines that a, a producer that, that, uh, that I'd worked with before used to always throw out, uh, and I heard it a million times. That's a good way to not sell records. Dude. Um, and I've even stolen it a few times, you know, uh, but he would say it's so like, you know, man, I, I don't know about that idea. What if, what if I played this riff instead? And he would come back with, well, yeah, sure. I mean, it's a good way to not sell records. <laughs> um, that's a good way of saying or not <laughs> right and it's funny because it's something that i remembered and it was kind of a chuckle at the moment but also a okay yeah we're not going to do that it's a lighthearted way of getting the point across yeah um which is another way to communicate with the artist sometimes they handle humor well and you're like man you know that's a good way to not sell records that's funny okay i won't do it and other people are like no it'll sell records it's a, it's a good huh. testament. I mean, I, I think a, an effective producer has to be a people person. Um, you're not going to find too many producers, if any, that are hardcore introverts, don't like talking, that are really quiet. Yeah. And if they're calling themselves a producer and they're not coaching you through whatever you're recording in the studio, they're not a producer. They're an engineer. They're an engineer. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and there's there's been times, uh, Robert, that you and I have have worked together with artists and pushed them so much that that all of a sudden the mic goes quiet and we walk into the the live room and yeah. they're literally laying on the ground crying. That's not happened just once. That's happened several times. And uh, it, it there's a lot of stress that goes on in the studio. There's a lot. There's a lot that, you know, again, like I was saying earlier, you've done all this work. You know, you've, you've written these songs. Sometimes, you know, this might be your life's work. These songs, right, yeah. you may have spent the last 10 years writing the perfect record. And now it's time to figuratively etch it in stone because yeah. we know once those recordings go on the internet, they're there forever. Someone's going to listen to them and, and someone's going to find it. 
as a producer, you have to remember that those thoughts are circling around in your artist's mind the whole time and they want to put their best foot forward and they have entrusted you to figure out what their best foot is because they don't know. And it's, you know, we're all, we're all our own worst critics, but we're also, none of us have a, a truly accurate perception of ourselves. Yeah. Think of it as a big giant funnel or upside down pyramid. And in the top of this upside down pyramid or funnel, all this, these, these artists like whole lives are poured into their experiences, the way they were like brought up, the, the relationship they have with their parents or husbands or wives or girlfriends or boyfriends or anybody they've come and encountered with, uh, like any, uh, all their finances, all of their relationships and their socials and anything that they have, all of their lyrics are all funneling down and it finally comes to a head, finally comes to a point, finally exits the funnel at you. You as the producer have to take all of their life, all of their work, all, or if it's a band, all of their lives works all of them combined and pinpoint it into their vision and nail it or else they'll be mad at you. Other people will be mad at you. They've wasted all their money, all their time um, on that moment. So you have to make sure you're on the same page with them and making sure that, that you get to know where they're coming from and where they want to go or else the whole thing is just going to explode. So something that we talked about in our episode kind of dealing with, how as human beings, we're the only creatures on earth capable of fully understanding, enjoying, and having that emotional connection with music um, is specifically how the music affects us emotionally. Yeah. And, uh, and I can tell you, um, you know, going to therapy myself, uh, you know, dealing with certain tragedies throughout my life, whatever it is, um, more than once I've had counselors turn to music to evoke an emotional response in a situation where otherwise I couldn't find the emotion for it. And so that's how powerful music is. But in order for the listener to feel that emotion, the singer has to fully grasp and convey that emotion. And sometimes artists, especially, you know, depending on the genre, sometimes these artists, they're not singing songs that they wrote. They're not singing songs that are based on their own personal life experiences. They're based on their the songwriter's experiences sure. or whatever. Uh, and that's a moment where we have to stop and say, okay, turn the music off for a moment right. and let's discuss what this song is saying and let's go there. Yeah, yeah. And, and I can't tell you how many times I know personally, and I know you've done the same, um, we've had to talk to a vocalist and say like, I'm not, I'm not buying what you're selling. I'm not picking up what you're laying down if it's a sad song, like, why is it sad? What is this about? And I know there was an artist that you and I worked on collectively um, with a female singer and she was in there crying because we put her in that place. We, we literally got the take in one, one take, one recording um, after she went to that spot and I realized what she wrote that song about or what it was about and what it was trying to convey. As soon as she broke down to that spot, she nailed it. One take, no edits, nothing. I left it just as it was. Um, and that was the take that made the record. If I recall, you didn't even tune that vocal, did you? Uh, if I did, it was lightly, but no, it was just one of those things where I think if there were imperfections. I think that was emotional and intentionally left there. Um, kind of, kind of getting goosebumps thinking about it, but it's just, uh, you should look it up. Um, I don't know. Are we allowed to say it? I guess we could say it. Well, they're an amazing band. Look up the band above rattlesnakes. Um, there's a ballad on their, their EP that, 
is uh, really good. Is and it No Fear? No Fear is the name of the song. And she just nailed it. Just front to back, top to bottom, straight across the board. As soon as she, I mean, she had like watery face, <laughs> red cheeks and, and tear stains as she was singing it. But it, it, it starts off like a ballad and gets pretty ballad and gets really big. And the whole thing, she just nailed it. And, and the thing is, again, when you're recording a vocalist specifically, you've got the engineer and he's watching the, the faders and he's watching the, the meters and he's making yeah. sure things aren't clipping. And depending on the dynamic of the producer and engineer, which a lot of times a producer will have an engineer that he likes and, and they work together all the time. Right. Knowing, um, knowing ahead of time what, you, what the producer wants is a huge key in staying hired as an engineer. Yes. Just like predicting the next step. So the, the engineer might even be listening for the pitch of the artist because what the producer is more focused on is are you delivering the emotion yeah. that I need? Are you selling it? And um, whether that's rock and roll and you need an angry response, you know, you need that, that angst or it's a happy song you know, pop kind of stuff sometimes, even like TV film sort of music, which oh, is yeah. um, pop alternative, you know, telling someone to smile while they sing. And they're like, well, I'm not happy. It's like, okay, well, as a as your producer, <laughs> let's take a minute and figure out how to get you well, actually happy. Let's get happy. Yeah. Um, one, and uh, one of the, to, to totally interrupt you, one of those things that- kinda, I'm gonna let you finish. Okay, fine. That's, that happened last time. <laughs> Thanks, Kanye. One of those things that kind of helps us get them in that, that happy mode is false encouragement. It's, yes. It's one of those things where, yeah, it's kind of being untruthful, but you're going to get the end result right this way or better because if you have a guitarist or a singer or a drummer or whatever, who's just down on themselves, like, oh, man, this is like the 30th time we've had to play this riff or sing this line. I'm just never going to get it. If you're like, sometimes it just takes the producer waking up and just going, that was it. Whatever you just did, that was it. Let's do that again. Oh my gosh. It's like, did anybody else hear that? And like, you're like looking around the room, like, come on guys, chime in. <laughs> like, oh, oh yeah, that was it. That was the one. No, but like, if you can sell that to the artist, like, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let me do it again. And all of a sudden they're perking up and they're starting to feel better about themselves. You, you might start getting the takes you need when, instead of the whole take number 146. Here I go. My fingers are bleeding, but it's fine. Yeah, I, oh, I can tell you, uh, even recently, uh, within the last few weeks, I had an artist in, and the session was, I mean, it was like pulling teeth, and he he happened to actually have one good take. There was something that he did that was like, first time he did it was amazing, and I I freaked out. I was like, oh my gosh, that was absolutely incredible. Just what you said, do that again. The rest of the session he was knocking things out in one or two takes. <laughs> um, whereas maybe it was taking 10 or 15 before that. It was just, you know, getting really monotonous. Um, some artists, they just need encouragement, but there is a fine line between uh, encouraging the person you're working with uh, to try to pull a good takeout and not encouraging them to play it poorly or sing Re it poorly. Repeatedly. Yeah. Um, they might be like, oh, okay, I'll do exactly what I just did. It's like, well, no, no well, it just, it sucked. <laughs> it, you have to, yeah, you have to learn as a producer playing these mind games, when to use certain tricks and when not to, you have to know how they're going to respond to what you say in advance before you say it. Cause if you say, oh, that was awesome. Let's do it again. They might mess up again on purpose because they knew that's what you wanted, um, or played the wrong note, but 
you have to kind of gauge the personality. You have to be a people person, like you said earlier, Jake. Um, and every artist is different. Every single person that we have in the studio responds to what we say in a different manner. And you have to learn that sometimes in a very short notice, uh, just trying to figure out, okay, what kind of personality is this person? Um, by gauging on how they react to other things you've said, just in normal conversation, I have right. a feeling this is how you're going to respond to what I'm about to say. You know, one of my favorite favorite kind of things, and I, I use this all the time in life, um, and I actually respond well to it as well, um, is the compliment sandwich. Tell me about that. Um, I saw the notes. I have no idea where this is going. So, oh, the compliment sandwich. Okay, so it's um, Robert. Yes, Jake. You are killing it today, man. Whatever you're doing is awesome. It would be really cool maybe if we just, if if you just tried closing your mouth a little more. I don't um, see, like, I'm just kidding. This is just cool. Just maybe not talking as much. Okay. Um, but everything you're saying is amazing. I see. You took a compliment. You put something, yeah, what's the word? Um, uh, criti- critical. Criticism. Yeah, yeah critical, in between, yeah. another compliment. Compliment, yep. criticism, compliment, like an ice cream sandwich. The compliment sandwich. I like that. Um, and I know... I do the same thing. I never I, call it that. <laughs> I know that it works for me as well. It's like, because you, you leave them do with you? a good taste in their mouth, they're going to be a lot more receptive to what you had to say. Right. Um, and But it doesn't work with everyone. Like we were just saying, you know, every everyone is different. People and people see through it. Yeah. It, it, I don't think people listening to this podcast right now realize how much we have to think about the psychology behind the artist and how much of our job is mental. I mean, yeah, it's creative and the whole vision of the song and musical and all that stuff, but more of our job is relating with the artists. And I don't think that people really understand that. Now, hopefully this is opening their eyes to it, but not only is it the artist that we have to convince of certain things. Sometimes if we're engineering, we have to convince the producer of other things and vice versa. If we're producer, we have to get the engineer to do certain things our way, playing mind tricks all over the field. Well, and it's funny that you mentioned that I, uh, you know, you and I are both artists and I didn't say this earlier when I was introducing you, but you do, you play drums for As We Ascend, the band that we're in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's the number one plaque for it. There's uh, Best New Artist of the Year as well as Rock Album of the, the Year. Billboard number one over there. I um, Just tooting our own horn, Jake. So, what supposed to do. Uh, so you play drums. I play guitar. I sing. Uh, Justin Forshaw. But it's something, uh, you know, I've been an artist now for quite a while, several years, yeah. uh, performing in a, in a larger arena. And when you do that, uh, if you don't have a dedicated uh, monitor engineer, yes. someone who is in charge of of adjusting the level of all the other instruments that you hear while Only you're the band hears it, yeah. Um, then, then you have you know what's called the house engineer. That's what you, as the audience member, the ticket buyer, hears. And there have been so many times where I'm like, oh, I want more of my guitar in the monitor, and I just want a little bit, just a little bit more. And so I stick my finger up. I'm like, okay, give me some more. Give me some more. Give me some more. Perfect. That's it. That's what I need right there. That's it. Don't, don't touch anything else. And I don't know till later or maybe right then that, oh, the monitor engineer was sending a text message. He didn't actually touch anything. Yeah. It's all psychological. I, I play that game in the studio too. And I've, I've been, I think I've been the victim of that as well <laughs> um, with engineers I've used. But sometimes uh, while working with other producers um, and I'm just hired to engineer for some reason or another, I don't have a time, like I don't have a second to get over to like what they asked me to do. So I'm over there on Pro Tools on the computer, type, 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 typing, doing some stuff. And he's like, hey, when you get a second, can you just adjust that four kilohertz tone on the snare drum? I'm like, yes, sir. Just a second. Like I'm getting ready to hit save over here on the computer. And before I slide over there to the console to turn a knob, um, they're like, oh, that's perfect. 
And so I just slide back over. I'm like, you like that? And he's like, yeah, that's perfect. Whatever you just did. I'm like, well, what? I'm thinking in my head, what I just did was slide over from one side of the room to the other. Um, but uh, cool, if he's, if he's happy with that, totally a mind game and he's happy with that. But there's something on a console Yes. So I've never heard of this until today. You were telling me about it. And I think it's so funny that this, you know, sometimes because we work in our own little bubbles all the time, we don't realize that these kinds of things are just, they're part of the human condition. Every (laughs) human on earth does this and manufacturers of recording consoles have have wised up to this. Yeah. So there's something um, in the industry, some of us insiders, we call flip mode. Um, It's a button on the console. You know, the console is the big board with all the knobs and faders. Um, It looks like a spacecraft getting ready to take off. Um, (laughs) There's a, okay, let's paint a picture here. On this console, there's all those little round buttons that turn things, whatever. But the faders, the things that slide up and down, there's usually two sets, a small set right above the larger set. And the large set is the one you see in all the movies where people have their fingers on them, pushing them up and down. And there's a smaller set right above those that you really don't pay attention to. The small set is usually what's going to tape or to the computer to record, to the hard drive, whatever. So when the microphones are plugged into the console, those affect the level. If you turn down the small fader, you don't hear, you don't see the waveform on the computer anymore. It's not there. Um, But it comes back out of the computer into the big faders so you can monitor it in the room and listen. So if you turn those faders up and down, you don't hear it anymore, but it's still being recorded um, for later use. So producers wised up to this and they're like, well, if I want to push that guitar a little bit more, I'm going to go push the small fader. There's a button on the console called, uh, it could be called a number of things, depending on what manufacturer, but the flip button or uh, uh, mains to monitors, monitors to main, like all sorts of different buttons, names for it, the same button. But what it does is it flips the small and large fader functions. Reverses them. So if all of a sudden you just nonchalantly hit it, because you know the producer's been over there touching buttons they're not supposed to, it's called producer mode. It's where all of a sudden they go over there to nudge that small fader when they think you're not looking to try to give it a little bit more level on the hard drive. Uh, but really, it's not doing anything other than making it louder in the room. And they're like, yeah, that's what I needed. <laughs> and you're like, whatever floats your boat, fancy Nancy. But um, yeah, producer mode. And that's just kind of feeding their ego, making them feel like they did something or accomplished something. And that's like a little psychological trick that the console makers put in there to kind of help us out. I mean, there's other functional reasons for that, but uh, I call it producer mode and a lot of other people do too, just to kind of keep them, you know, happy. Happy and confident. Confident. And that's a huge part of something that's needs to happen in the studio for sure. Confidence really is key. I mean, uh, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you do, if you're headed to your job right now, um, if you're, you know, if you sell houses or if you, it doesn't matter if you're working at a, at a, you know, convenience store as a cashier clerk. If you're about to walk into the bedroom and your wife is waiting for you. There you go. Confidence. And the music industry (laughs) is no different. Um, the artist has to be confident. They have to feel like what they're doing is working and that it's good, and that the audience, you know, that it's just what they need to do. Yeah. Um, and there are some, there's some things that that play into keeping them confident. Because I have been in sessions where maybe I was using, you know, I was, I was trying to beat down an artist to get a performance out of them, and then I realize all of a sudden they've lost all confidence. I said the yeah. one thing, whatever it was that suddenly now they're like, they feel like a failure. Yeah. They can't do it. And we've, we've been in recording sessions where bands have, 
you know, they've flown in from out of town. Uh, they've paid a lot of money to stay in a hotel and come, you know, they're paying for the the recording <laughs> studio and all the fees, everything associated. And they've completely lost confidence and the session is over. Yeah. They cancel the rest of the week and they have to go home and figure out something else because there's just no way that they can continue. And you can't really prepare for that. Sometimes it just happens. Yeah. And it, like I said earlier, it's a lot of stress that happens in the studio. There's a lot of pressure, a lot of lifetime of things leading up to this or, you know, like, I don't want to disappoint my parents again, or <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to put out another record, which bombs or whatever it may be. That's all leading up to this moment in the funnel. Um, and, and we talked about some of these before, like keeping them amped up or portraying the emotions that they're trying to portray. Like if it's a sad song or a happy song, they need to sound sad or happy. Um, lying to them a little bit, uh, you know, to fluff their ego. I mean, sometimes um, it could be as simple as just making it really loud. Yeah. Or they're listening turning to it like up. just turning it up really loud or, or and down. Like, That's awesome. Um, I know that sometimes with singers turning up the hi hats, just give them those subdivisions, like suddenly they, they're right on time and tempo is, is good again. Or taking a headphone off of one ear and all of a sudden they hear themselves in the room. Sounds more natural, like they're singing in the shower rather than singing with their hands over their ears. You and I last year were actually working with an artist who uh, we were working on the song. Midway through the session, they just lost confidence. They're like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like I thought it was supposed to sound. And the truth is that, you know, no, they... It's not their job to understand that, well, we're just recording. We haven't edited anything. None of this is really mixed. It's right. just, but um, when we saw that happening, we realized very quickly that, okay, we're going to have to maybe add some effects to this, add an echo or a, or a delay or a reverb or whatever. Make it sound more like a finished record in their ears so they kind of get the whole picture. And they have confidence. Yeah. Um, and sometimes then it's possible you can use auto-tune live um, in yeah. some circumstances where it's kind of it messes with me. I've tried singing with auto tune on and I hear something different in my brain than what I'm hearing in my ears. And it messes with me, but some singers, I don't know if they have that. Um, but yeah, it totally jacks with me when I have the tuned version in my headphones, um, and not in my brain, like what I'm actually singing. So I know that some artists, it helps them to hear the note they're supposed to hear. And sometimes you and I've done this where we either play a piano melody or something or, We'll go in there and sing it ourselves, even though I'm not a great singer. I know you are. And like, hey, just match my pitch. You're a great singer. And suddenly like, oh yeah, that's what you wanted. I got it. I got it. I got it. And all of a sudden you get a take. Well, I was going to say like the vibe in a room. Oh, that's everything. Can be everything. And the. Even to the decor of the room. I was about to say the decor of the room, the lighting, you know, I was just showing you, I just picked up these cool Edison lights for my room. I've got a band coming into track in here next week. I freaking love Edison lamps. They're like those so lights. cool. Um, but the, even and not just uh, not just with artists and and performers, but even record labels, managers, all that kind of stuff. Um, the way your studio looks can be the difference in getting a job or not. Oh yeah, I mean the way it looks, even on social media pictures, dude. Yeah. Um, and this is no lie. Here's a secret story. I, don't, I haven't told anybody this. I don't know if I've told you this. I was working with, um, I guess you could call him another producer. And uh, he had brought in a band and we were going to co-produce this band. Um, and I didn't know, you know, how he found this band or what was sold to this band as far as like, hey, you need to come work with myself and Robert Venable. But the band came into town and as soon as they got into my studio, I could tell something was weird. I'm like, why are they acting weird? And they're having band meetings and going outside and talking and coming back in and just acting weird. And at the end of day one, one of them finally said like, Hey, this isn't like the pictures we saw on 
the website. No way. And I'm like, I haven't maintained that website in years. Like I even forgot that website existed. It was a website for an old recording studio. A lot of the gear was the same or better, but the pictures were of a previous like location. And like, I'm like, why are they, why are they being weird? And like, well, it just doesn't look like what we thought it'd be like. I'm like, who cares? Like I'm better now. It's been years since that studio and my, my craft has been honed even tighter and the gear's better and I know how to operate it. Um, and newsflash, this goes to anybody listening right now. Most studios that you hear stuff on the radio um, where the songs were recorded at aren't anything like what you've seen in the TV show Nashville or any movies with recording studios. Some of them, and a lot of them, are done in people's houses. A yeah. lot of vocals are tracked. Um, I have a gold record hanging on the wall for drums I tracked in a room smaller than your bedroom. I promise you that. And in in what is, I guess, what was an accounting office, just a square room with a lot of sound treatment in it. And uh, yeah, that Kelly Clarkson record was tracked. A lot of that was tracked in the a room smaller in your bedroom. Wow. So so a big part of producing is just the visual aesthetic. It's weird, man. And getting that gets in that, people's brains. That Yeah, getting that right, you know, those good takes and that confidence that you need. Um, not saying you have to have a completely sexy studio, but make the, the aesthetics look right. Yeah, if you've got those like white fluorescent I lights. doctor's lights. Yeah, if you've got those right above your vocals and... You know, white laundry sitting next to it. Right. You're not, you know, the singer's probably not going to give you the best (laughs) vocal performance. So your guitar player is going to be like, I just want to get out of here. This Um, does not feel comfortable. Yeah. I was reading an article with a producer who had worked with um, Barry White on Let's Get It On, that kind of thing. And uh, they said he had to turn down the lights and light some candles to match the lowness of his voice and what he was singing. And then that makes sense. But and adversely, you don't want to have like low lit, candlelit room while they're singing when's the bass gonna drop right you know what i mean (laughs) um you got to kind of match the vibe of the song and the vibe of the artist and if they're into incense and candles light some incense and candles to make them you know comfortable okay i know that we've been talking so much already about this whole psychology thing and how it's all playing in um and we've got so much more to talk about and so we um are going to put a pin in it for right now and uh, I'm telling you right now that this is, there's more you want to hear. We're going to drop some bombs, um, but you're gonna have to wait till next a Monday. Huge bomb. Like the atom bomb, but bigger, like a, like a, I don't know. Like a, like a, like a uh, an Albert than, bomb. An Albert bomb. Because Adam, he was cool. He was pretty big, but, but Albert Albert's is even bigger. Even bigger. Uh, but you're gonna have to wait till next Monday. Um, I promise you, we've already recorded it. There's so much that we've we've dropped on on that one, and uh, you're not gonna want to miss it. Ugh. I just don't want you to sit here for two hours listening to our stinking voices. I know you might want to, but we don't want to listen to our own voice for two hours. Um, so you're gonna have to wait till next Monday. But uh, until until then, this is Nashville signing out. Peace. Peace.